Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 192. My name is Irvin. Joining me as always, my colleague from PensionPlanPuppets.com. It's Acting the Fooleman. Hi, everybody. How are you doing, Fooleman? I am not too shabby. How about yourself? I'm uh, I'm doing all right. Uh, my my interest in the World Cup has now been slightly depleted now that Canada Canada lost. Um, but other than that, it's been a, it's been a good like sports ish week for 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 my sensibilities. Yeah, well, uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs have continued to get points, uh, as has Mitch Marner. They lost last night in overtime to the Tampa Bay Lightning, but they've had basically one regulation loss in the last month or so, mm-hmm. which is pretty spectacular, and it's led to a vault up the standings. Uh, oh, sorry, yeah. so this is just completely random, mm-hmm. but can I interject? This is going back to the World Cup stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, during the Canada-Morocco game, they showed a Canadian fan who had like a foam finger, um, and it's like a normal foam finger, but it had like a taped on sign on it that said, we are so proud. And this is as Canada oh. were losing to nothing. And I was watching at my oh. office and my entire office just like died. It's like the most <laughs> absurdly like stereotypical Canadian thing ever. Yeah. I, I made a, a comment about that this week and I made a lot of people annoyed and I was like, I'm not trying to rain on the, uh, the world cup or the Canadian men's team. Good on them for the achievement. It's just... I think we do puff our chefs out a little bit right up until we get proven to be like a pretty minor country at some things. And then we're suddenly like, we're really just happy to be here. <laughs> so <laughs> anyway, anyway, sorry, that, that was that has nothing to do with, with hockey at least. But I, I wanted to bring that up and yes. there was no other reasonable point in the podcast <laughs> to do so. so. <laughs> I'm glad we covered it off. Yeah, but the Leafs are doing well, um, <laughs> notwithstanding a loss last night. I don't think they have anything too much to worry about. Um a tight game with the Tampa Bay Lightning is kind of what happens. And, you know, I wish they would stop losing three-on-three every single time. It's but... like the same pattern every single time, too. It's like we get the puck, we turn the puck over at the blue line, and then someone comes in on the rush and shoots, and it just goes in. Yeah, and, you know, I know that this team has been decent at three-on-three in the past. I know these players can do it, but I've watched it happen so many times now that it's hard not to be a little bit like... What's happening here, guys? The thing is, it's not even like, oh, this is, these are like back and forth overtimes that we're getting the bad end of. It's like literally <laughs> within the first minute every time, somehow the Leafs will do something to give the other team a good chance and they score. Yeah, it's always like, it's such a letdown to you make it to OT and then instantly it's like, whoop, night's over. So anyway, notwithstanding that though, the Leafs are doing fine. Um, Mitch Marner is rolling with a 19 game point streak. Um... There's been sort of an interesting development that we've noticed, and that maybe you have too, which is that this is the year that the Toronto Maple Leafs 2018 draft class is kind of coming into its own a little bit. And that was Cal Dubas's first draft as full GM, so his fingerprints are presumably all over it. And so we thought it might be interesting to take a look at the five players uh, from those selections who have started playing NHL games. Um, some of them were already here before the season, a couple of them got their first games in this season but maybe we'll figure out something about what Kyle Dubas looks for um how it's going and just sort of how has that draft set us up or failed to set us up for future success um as a preliminary before we begin the nature of drafting is that you're always evaluating stuff way after the fact mm-hmm. you know by this point Kyle Dubas could have a very different drafting strategy than he did in 2018 um, but this is kind of when we're seeing those picks start to bear fruit or not. So, yeah, we thought that would be interesting. Um, there was a trend throughout this, and you'll hear it probably as we cover the players, towards hockey IQ, for lack of a better term. Um, mm-hmm. Toolbox more than necessarily tools. Players who seem to make the right play, even if they aren't exceptionally physically gifted. Um, also not a lot of big players. Every yeah. single skater they picked was under six feet. Um, so yeah, and there were also a couple of Sioux Greyhounds. I wonder if that would be a recurring trend throughout Cal <laughs> Davis's subsequent four and a half years running this organization. So yeah, we thought we'll just get going on that. Uh, That's good. Let's, uh, let's kick <clears throat> it off. All right. So Rasmus Sandin was the first pick, um, the most famous one, the one you probably know the most about already. Uh, the, the Leafs were slated to pick 25th overall. Uh, instead, Cal Dubas did as he is wont to do. He traded down 
with the St. Louis Blues to move from 25th to 29th and to pick up a third round pick, which was used on popular meme leaf pick, Semyon Argachintsev, who is still toiling away with the Marlies at present. He's not going to be featured today. He hasn't made the NHL yet, but it's not out of the question. Um, if you're wondering, the 25th pick that the Leafs gave up went on Dominic Bach, who was well thought of at the time, has not done so well since, and is currently in the DEL. Um, he's on an NHL contract, but it doesn't look like he's going to do too much. Um, as for Sandine, he played his draft year, as said, for the Sault Ste. Marie Greyhounds. Uh, obviously, uh, Kyle Dubas and Sheldon Keefe were not in the organization at that time, but Kyle Raftis, who succeeded them as GM, is obviously still quite close to Kyle Dubas. He has connections in that organization. Um, sometimes in response to Dubas picking up a lot of Sioux Greyhound players, there's been people saying like, well, he wasn't in the org at that time. And it's like, first of all, he usually was. <laughs> um, but in some cases where he wasn't, he still had that connection to the organization, we suspect. Um, well, and and, and yeah. Dubas is like family. Like the Sioux, the Sioux Greyhounds are like a family business for the Dubases. Yeah, his grandfather was the coach. Um, you know, he came up working with that team very closely. I'm not saying that he's not good, but I'm saying like, he, he had sort of a leg up into the organization, you have to admit. Um, well, yeah, and like, yeah. like the connection to them is, it, it, it's not severed as soon as he, he left. Exactly. Like, by and any stretch. To be clear, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Right. Um, it's only bad if it leads him to make questionable decisions. And by and large, the Sioux Greyhounds that he's acquired have worked out or been pretty defensible. And Rasmus Sandin is one of the most famous ones. I'm going to pull up some quotes from 2018, just so we can remember, like, what were people saying when this pick was made? And so here's Kevin Papetti, who was writing for our site at the time. Sandin is not overly flashy, but he's an intelligent player who can play in all situations. He should have no problem keeping up at the NHL level, and he's strong enough as a puck mover to play on a second power play unit. This reminds me a lot of the Travis Dermott pick from back in 2015, as Sandin is a player who probably lacks the slap shot and flash of an elite scorer, and is not quite strong enough to develop into a prototypical shutdown defender. As a result, he seems unlikely to develop into a top pairing defender, and he was placed towards the end of my first round as a result. He can really pass the puck, and he's known for his hockey sense. I gotta give some props to Kevin. I think that that holds it's remarkably well. accurate. Yeah. <laughs> Again, he wrote this four and a half years ago. Um, right. Yeah, and I think that almost all of that has been borne out pretty much to the letter. Um, Scott Wheeler, in a, a shorter quote, No surprise, the Leafs took Sandine, great passer and skater, a lot like Dermot, to be honest. Heady, intelligent player, thrived on a good team. Don't think he has top pairing upside, but he's a quality prospect. And again, I don't think too many people are projecting Sandine onto the top pair at this point. Um... It's not the craziest thing. You know, he still has time to keep maturing and developing. But yeah, this looks like about an accurate summary as a, a heady, good playmaking defenseman who can certainly hold down a third pairing, maybe maturing to do a second pairing sort of role. Mm -hmm. um, just as a bit of a quick survey, after that season, he went to the Marlies and quickly established himself as one of the stronger prospects in the Leafs organization. I kind of remember he famously passed Timothy Liljegren. Right, and, and people were very, very high on, on Liljegren because he fell to the Leafs. You know, uh, he was projected by, by some to go very, very high, uh, certainly at the start of his draft year. Mm -hmm. um, it also was that time where every Leafs fan became an expert on the impact of mono. <laughs> and how, how it could completely sewer someone's draft stock un unfairly. Uh, you know what? I remember it for Timothy Lilligren, but I feel like that came up for like four or five or six players. Yeah. Wasn't it also a thing for uh, for Casey Middlestat? I feel like it might have been. Yes, and uh, I don't think it was just the mono in Casey Middlestat's case. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, Sandine did appear to like leapfrog Lilligren. Um, I, I don't have the numbers off top, but like you could proxy this by looking at like PVP's top 25 under 25. Uh, yeah. Sandin at one point I think was ranked lower than Lilligren and then eventually became ranked higher. Yes. Uh, and you know, he, he had a great, very mature first year on the Marlies. And I think that that's where his stock really started to rise. 
Obviously, he was well thought of as a first-round pick, but it made it seem more likely that he was going to be an NHL-caliber player soon. And, you know, I think he was. Um, yeah, it just for the sake of hindsight, I thought it was interesting to mention who they might have taken instead, because if you were there, you might have remembered a lot of people shouting for Dubas to take Joe Valeno. I was as well. I remember. I was, I was one in, of those people. <laughs> I was in a hostel in Naples, and it was like absurdly late, obviously, because it's it's the draft time is that evening and Eastern time, and I was like staying up, and I was super annoyed that Dubas kept trading back. Yeah, because it's like, man, like I, I that means I have to stay up longer. And remember, the first round of the NHL draft takes forever. Yes. Um, and I was just so cranky. I'm like, just fucking take Valeno, <laughs> and then Dubas did not take Valeno. Yeah, I was like, and the thing is, is that. Even when I studied the draft, insofar as I did it, it was, like, for the first round. So I was basically like, okay, uh, if I recall correctly, the players I wanted were, like, Yuso Valimaki and mm-hmm. Valeno. And Valimaki was yeah. gone. If I remember, This is if I remember correctly. I may be mixing up years. But, yeah, Valeno was still there. Valeno went with the next pick, 30th overall, to the Detroit Red Wings. And right now he's their fourth-line center. Um, and Valeno had a bit of a rep because he got exceptional player status when he was 15, which allowed him to play in major junior before the normal age minimum. And the players who have done that have often turned out to be big deal players. Um, exceptional status is sort of famous for major junior. Uh, Connor Bedard got it. John Tavares got it. A couple others. Sean Day also got it, it and he hasn't worked out. It does seem like it's become less and less of a sign of oh this guy's like earmarked for the nhl and will be a star there yeah like for a while they were like batting a thousand on that mm-hmm. they, were, they were super super judicious about who got exceptional status and everyone who got exceptional status had like become a ridiculous nhl player yeah and now we've had a couple of cases in valeno and sean day where i think it looked more like they just matured quicker like they were just in a better spot at 15 but yeah. it didn't lead to greater did, growth. Did Lafreniere get exceptional status as well? Uh, you know what? It feels like he did just based on how touted he was. And I think that's yeah. already faded a lot. But he wasn't that physically mature, maybe. Um, a moment while I open yeah, his we can, Wikipedia page and control uh, F for the word exceptional. No, it's not yeah. there. So there's okay. your research. Um, yeah. Uh, anyway... With regard to Valeno, I think you can say that, you know, with the qualification that draft and develop is always a bit of a crapshoot. Sandine looks like the better pick right now. I'm happier that we have him than I would be having Joe Valeno at this time. Um, yeah, and he's been about in line with those projections. I have to say, Kevin's analysis of him holds up as really astute. So, yeah, anyway, I think we're pretty happy with it. We're always hoping for more out of Sandine, but... He's having what's shaping up to be a better year now, and he's certainly on track to deliver. Yeah, I, think, I mean, honestly, the the last few weeks where he's been forced to play essentially second pairing uh, with Timothy Liljegren due to all the injuries has probably done a huge, done him a huge favor. Mm-hmm. Right, we were talking before about how his season was slightly disappointing. Now he, he's also, um, I think he's also benefited from some some good puck luck in these last two weeks as well where like again we just haven't seen him fish the puck out of his net very often and that always like improves a player in your mind yes yeah good goaltending behind you will always make you look a whole lot better yep um okay so then the next pick that the leafs had uh was was sean jersey so he was picked 52nd overall uh i took a look there was no very obvious steals behind him so this seems like a reasonable pick based on hindsight uh Dursey was also ranked 48th on Bob McKenzie's pre-draft survey. So also a reasonable pick based on the consensus at the time. So if you recall, this was the Leafs draft of the overagers. Mm. There, there was a, a few overagers at the Leafs draft. We'll talk about another one shortly. Um, Dursey was one of them. So he was passed over in the 2017 draft, his first year of draft eligibility. So um, similar to, to with Sandy, we'll take a a quick look from a 2018 perspective. Again, I'm quoting Kevin Papetti here, who uh, ranked or who, who wrote up his top 25 under 25 profile, where he was initially ranked 18th. 
typically, I mean, there's not much interesting about the rank itself um, in this case because he was just drafted. So usually, like a first round draft pick will, depending on where they're drafted, will will slot in, you know, in the in the low teens or possibly top ten, depending on how good they are. Obviously, it was different for his Austin Matthews or whatever. Um, and second round draft picks usually slot in right around here. So quoting from Papetti, uh, Dursey was passed over in the 2017 draft after scoring just two goals in 60 games for Owen Sound, despite being one of the oldest players in that draft class. He later attended Toronto's development camp, then broke out in a big way when he returned to the OHL. Uh, the six-foot defender posted 65 points in 51 games, ranked second among OHL defenders in points per game for the regular season, played on one of the OHL's top teams, and benefited from playing with um, Nick Suzuki and Jonah Gachevich on the power play, but his scoring production was also pretty strong at, at 5v5. From reading some scouting reports at the time, uh, this is no longer quoting from Papetti, to be clear. From reading mm-hmm. some scouting reports at the time, the basic, the book on, on Dursey was that he was a good puck mover, primarily through his passing rather than his skating, demonstrated kind of strong vision and playmaking at a, as a power play quarterback at the junior level, and, and people thought he maybe possessed some upside to, to do that at the NHL level as well. And he was quite willing to jump into offensive plays and, and use a pretty sneaky wrist shot to, to generate some offense. And as you'd expect, you know, I'm saying all these nice things about him offensively. Well, why was he picked at the end of the second round? Uh, he's not incredibly small at six foot, but there were questions about his athleticism. And this is also a theme that we've seen with Dubas. This is also true of Sandine, for example, and something we've, we've said a lot in, you know, in contrasting him to, to Morgan Riley. But yeah, there were questions about Jersey's athleticism. Is he going to be quick enough and strong enough to allow his like vision and passing to, to actually shine and to defend in his own zone against against pro players. Now, Dursey, as you may remember, uh, was not a Leaf for very long. Uh, about six months after we drafted him, he was included as part of the deal that brought Jake Muzzin to Toronto. And Dursey was probably considered the best prospect in the trade, although not the best asset. If you recall, uh, the trade was Dursey, Carl Grundstrom, and a 2019 first for, for Jake Muzzin. So, I mean, I think this has probably been a pretty reasonable trade for both sides. Muzzin spent mm-hmm. now three and a half years in Toronto, not including this season, and was the Leafs' best defender, I would say, for most of that time. Yeah, I think that that's a fair assessment. And, you know, you can say, look, the Leafs didn't win in the playoffs through that period, but in evaluating this move in isolation, did Muzzin bring them closer to or further from a victor in the playoffs? I think you have to say he brought them closer than they would have been. He's also always pretty been pretty good in the playoffs actually as far as i remember yeah he wasn't the problem um his issues are health um as we're now experiencing in a, on a larger way but yeah i think that this trade certainly holds up despite jersey's emergence mm-hmm. which we will get to yes um so jersey broke into the nhl last season at the age of 23 he spent most of last season playing with a tobias bjornfoot on a pairing constructed actually entirely from the Muzzin return from LA because Bjornfoot was taken with the uh, 22nd overall pick in 2019, which is the pick that the Leafs gave up. Mm -hmm. So LA has a pretty egalitarian ice time split for defenders outside of Drew Doughty, from what I could see. And Dursey and Bjornfoot spent most of the season as what I would describe as like a reasonable third pair. They weren't great. They were like, okay. Um, Dursey had a pretty bad year in terms of, you know, fishing the puck out of his own net, as I alluded to earlier with, uh, with Sandine. Which, as far as I could tell, it looked like it was mostly just really bad save percentage when he's on the ice. I mean, you could imagine maybe he's taking all these absurd risks to, you know, make it hard for his goaltender. But I, I kind of don't really trust that would be the case for, for a young defenseman trying to establish himself in the NHL and for his coach to continue to play him. Mm. The interesting thing that happened last year for, for the Kings is that injuries to Drew Doughty and Matt Roy first forced Dursey into a much more prominent role. Um, you know, not entirely unlike what's happening right now with the Leafs and, and Sandine. And and Dursey did, I think, reasonably well uh, for a young player in that position. From March 8th onwards of last year, and Drew Doughty's last game was March 7th, Dursey was slightly above average in, in or slightly above 50%, I should say, in, in Corsi 4 percentage and expected goal percentage. This was lower than the team average, but, like, you know, still respectable. Mm. And, and given the context of, okay, this is, like, a young guy with less than a season of NHL experience who is now being forced to play much higher up in the lineup than he anticipated or anyone anticipated, it was it was pretty reasonable. Uh, he also got PDO'd pretty heavily in this time, specifically. Uh, during that point, he also got some, some time on the top unit power play, and 
seems to have a bit of confidence from the Kings coaching staff. So he, he I think, had a pretty successful rookie season in, in the NHL. Um, one thing to note is that the one of the items that we, we heard mentioned in the scouting report, his activity level offensive, that still appears to bear fruit. His, his shot clock convey it's it's that of a relatively aggressive defenseman he's not tied to the blue nine by any stretch he's willing to jump in he's willing to you know take some chances and he shoots like a reasonable amount right he, he's not you know a complete no entity offensively mm-hmm. now this season he's played pretty much exclusively with matt roy as part of what i would say is a pretty solid second pair in the face average competition and mostly win that um, mm-hmm. Now there, there are some some things to be like careful of here. It's been twenty three games, so any you know any results we should like be be a little you know cognizant for the fact that there's there's big error bars around everything. Um, the Kings also have this really aggressive kind of matching of their top line to their top pair, so that's Kopitar to Doughty typically, um, and their second line to their second pair, which is in this case uh, Philip Deneau to Sean Jersey and Matt Roy. Now. As a result, there's like some positive quality of teammate effects here in the raw numbers, right? Uh, Deneau is a wonderful defensive player and, and someone who just consistently tilts the ice in his favor, or in his team's favor. So, you know, playing a lot with him helps helps your numbers a fair bit. Uh, also worth noting, the Kings have sort of the inverse problem to a lot of what the NHL has, which is that they have a lot of right defensemen. Mm-hmm. So, Jersey and Roy are actually both right defensemen. Jersey was the one who shifted to the left side this season. Um, this might also change because Tobias Bjornfoot has has been recalled uh, and may play his natural side on the second pair, which is the left side. And Jersey might go to the bottom pair and play on the right side with Alex Edler. That's what happened in one game so far, um, at least by the, when I was doing this research. So um, that that's what Jersey has done, you know, last season in this. So, you know, it, it's... All in all, I mean, Jersey and Roy have been good this season, reasonably trusted by coaches, which is a good sign for his career. He's also, you know, the Kings gave him a two-year contract for $1.7 million per year, also a reasonable sign for, like, their confidence in him. All in all, I mean, I think I think Jersey has progressed pretty well. He seems like he's going to have, like, a pretty long and serviceable career as, like, a, a, a mid-tier defenseman, like a Justin Hall, if you will. Uh, mm. Both RIPM and Isolated Threat view Jersey as, like, kind of a solid defensive player with minimal impact on offense um but again this is on less than 100 games of data so so we take that with it with a grain of salt and i think the big thing you can say is like well he's played in the nhl he's played in some actual minutes in the nhl he hasn't looked completely out of place and there's a lot to say for that because inertia is like a powerful force in the nhl and if you just are in the nhl and you keep playing minutes decently well you can probably stay there for a while yes there's a point at which you become a guy who has done it and then you can be trusted to do it again over someone who never has. And I think Sean Dursey is approaching that territory now, um, which will be, yeah, a great sign for him professionally. Um, obviously, this is a bit of a melancholy look because we're saying, yeah, he's good and he's not ours anymore. But I think it, you know, it speaks to the quality of the drafting, the drafting strategy that Caldub has pursued. And he also has picked players that teams want to acquire in trades for good players. And that is often one of the big uses of a draft pick. It's not just going to be that these, they play for you. It's that someone might eventually want this player. Um, and John Dursey is now worth more than his draft slot would have been. So, yeah, you can chalk that up as a win for Kyle Dubas. Yep, I, I would agree with that. Um, okay, so moving on, we can talk about <clears throat> Mac Hollowell, Big Mac. Yes. Drafted 118th overall by Toronto. Um, also an overager, this time from the Sioux rather than Owen Sound. Maybe, so in terms of people we could have picked after him, like this is being nitpicky. <laughs> you know, we maybe mm. could have picked Philip Kurishev or Yegor Sharangovich. Um, they're both, you know, forwards who who've look reasonably good in the NHL, I think. But like, come on, it's a fourth rounder. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, like... Uh, w- w- you know, at, at this point, it's very hard to say, oh, what an obvious miss because like, no one who was picked here is like a really, really phenomenal prospect. Otherwise, they would have been picked, you know, a little bit higher than the fourth round. It's like the thing with the Zetterberg pick where it's like, well, any of the 200 preceding picks could have been Henrik Zetterberg, but weren't. It's like, yeah, there is probably going to be someone coming up behind you 
out of all of those picks who's something, but nobody knew who it was, or that player would not have gone 141st. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, like Jersey, he was he was drafted at uh, at age 19, and went to the following OHL season at age 20, so he'd have to, like, really dominate it to, to progress his NHL chances. Known for his agility and his vision, and passing in particular, he was a premier offensive defenseman at the junior level, and the question was basically... You know, how is someone of his size going to be able to translate this against pros? Mm-hmm. Right? So compared to Jersey, he has, you know, less size, more agility. Jersey had higher production in the 17-18 junior seasons in the same league. But, you know, of course, team effects can matter a lot there. Jersey was on a good team in Owen Sound, and I, I don't recall how good the Sioux was at that time. Mm-hmm. So Hollowell, more recently, spent, like, he spent the 2019-2020 season, actually, uh, a between the ECHL and the AHL, and essentially trying to make the transition to pro hockey, right? And this transition is especially tough for for people, for players like him, uh, small small players who, uh, you know, need to work on the defensive side of their game, essentially. So Hardev, uh, Hardev who works for PPP, wrote a, a pretty thorough article about Mac Hollowell in the 2020 Top 25 Under 25, where Hollowell was ranked number 22. And I'm not going to quote from it entirely, uh, just some key points. that. But basically, in the OHL, you know, Hollowell was considered a smooth skating a smooth skating beast in transition, right? His speed, vision, agility made him very hard to catch. But as you transition to the pro level, it becomes much harder to do that, right? Because everyone who you face was, you know, skilled and speedy and had good vision at lower levels. Yeah, when I did the top 25 under 25, and again, like... I didn't know a lot about very much, but one of the rules that I did try to stick to is I want to see what this guy does in a pro league um, again and again, because junior, the standards for physical maturity are just very different because these are young players. Um, If you are big, you can dominate on size. If you are small, size is less of of an exclusion for you in terms of something that's going to make you non-competitive. And there are some small players who make the adjustment to playing against full-grown men very well. There are some who don't. Mm-hmm. And so with Hollowell, the question was always going to be, how can he do that? Right. Uh, Hardev also mentioned that Hollowell seemed to be pretty selective about jumping into the rush, right? He, he, he was not a gung-ho offensive defenseman in the sense of like, okay, I'm going to like, you know, I'm going to just, like, Leroy Jenkins my way into into the offense here. Uh, and this could be part of the transition to, to being a pro as well, of Hollowell saying, I know I can't do this at the pro level when maybe I could have been more aggressive at the junior level. Uh, mm-hmm. This is also something we've seen a bit in the pros, or in the NHL, in, in Hollowell's short time there. But Hardov also mentions that he was kind of surprised by Hollowell's feistiness. And this, I think, is also a, a common theme of Dubas-drafted players. Even when they're small, he... he they do seem to have a pretty high uh, I don't, compete level is like not the best term because it, it could be kind of like a dog whistle in a lot of cases, but th- it, they do seem to rank pretty high in the give a shit meter. Yeah, well, I mean, we saw Rasmus Sandin throw himself full, full bore into a fight with Oliver Wallstrom to protect Austin Matthews a couple weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Rasmus Sandin is not the guy you anticipate doing that based on size and stereotype, right? Um, in terms of being like a skilled player. Um, and Sandine, you know, showed that stuff up. It speaks well to, I think, his engagement level. And, and you know, I, I think that's a recurring theme. Like, we're seeing all of these players who weren't like the 6'3 the beast who dominates junior or something. But they're all really engaged. And, yeah, I think that that speaks very well. This them. is also true of Nick Robertson, right? I think that's probably Robert. Yeah. Like, we've talked a lot about Robertson, but I think... And I've mentioned before that his shot is is probably the skill that most people think of, and justifiably so, when they think of Robertson mm-hmm. as, a, as a player and a prospect. But his motor is is the one that really stands out to me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so now no longer quoting from Hardev, just you know my own thoughts based on based on reading this and seeing seeing Hollowell, you know, both at the time and now. The biggest weakness is basically his lack of physical gifts. Right, he's not that big. He's not that strong. He's agile, but he's not incredibly fast. So, you know, and he's while he has good offensive talent and vision, he's not so overwhelmingly talented in that way. 
to like really impose his will on games uh, through that alone. So he really mm-hmm. does have to rely on his smarts and his puck skills to make a difference against pros, and it, it's hard. He has a much smaller margin for error than someone who is just simply bigger, stronger, faster. Yeah. I, I think, you know what, he's shown well in his minutes. I also do want to give him some credit because he's playing with Victor Mete. Mm-hmm. And forgive me, Victor Mete is just a wonderful skater. That's it. So I don't think that it's necessarily the easiest position, especially if you are a young defenseman who is working to meet the demands of defensive solidity at the NHL level to be paired with Victor Mete. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know like he's gotten an opportunity and great for him. And that's good. I'm just saying, I actually don't know if it even was as easy as his usage might make it appear. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Mete is no one's idea of like an incredibly solid rugged defensive defenseman who can help. Uh, I don't know who can help insulate as someone new to the NHL. Right. Yeah, like if if you could have your pick coming up as a coach and probably even as a player, like you'd rather be playing with Jordy Ben, right? Right. So. And, and I mean, to that point, the the Leafs' third pair in these past few weeks, which has mostly been Holloway, Hollowell, Mete, has not really been trusted by the coaches staff the way it, the third pair was trusted when Jordy Ben was on it, mm-hmm. right? Um, and that makes sense. Ben is like a reliable set of hands, and who who is was shockingly good, I think, for for the Leafs in in the time that he did play. Yeah, so anyway, I, I think that certainly the Hollowell pick is, is good. The thing is we're now in the range where it's like, did they ever appear in an NHL game? You've already beaten the average for the draft slot. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Hollowell has done that. Yeah, and, and we've seen some, some cool flashes from him. He's had a couple of nice mm-hmm. assists. Um, and you can, at point, see his vision in the offensive zone and his poise in the offensive zone. He, he like the... the, the Slap pass to Matthews for for a tip in. I forget against who again. I forget who they did that against. But that's like a, that's a that's a play from someone who clearly can read offensive plays and offensive systems well, right? Like that that's so many players walk into that and blast that high and wide because it's just like mm-hmm. oh cool you know <laughs> ooh shiny puck let me hit it right but, yeah and it's a very dangerous play because you're showing shot almost the whole motion mm-hmm. and then tick to the side and you made it basically a tap in for the best goal scorer in the world yes so Hollowell does have actual skills i think he will be nhl adjacent for a while it's always tough to make that jump from nhl adjacent to i am a solid nhler i think jersey yeah. has made that jump in part due to you know last year where he he performed relatively well in a third pair throughout the year and then performed better than expected on in higher usage towards the end of the year due to injuries. Hollowell might or might not get that chance, right? It's taken an injury crisis to get him in the lineup at all. But he has not done anything to make you think, oh, this guy has zero hope at the NHL level going forward. There are still some obvious weaknesses. He's gotten like out-muscled in board battles and in front of the net a fair bit. Again, that pairing with him and Victor Mete is is no one's idea of Niedermeyer and Stevens. <laughs> yeah, not exactly. But uh, yeah, I think he's certainly done more to help his case than to hurt it mm-hmm. um, in his time in the NHL level. And to some extent, that's all you can ask. So keep knocking on the door and, you know, maybe even next year we're seeing him in the conversation for a healthy Leafs lineup. Right now, as they get bodies back, Hollowell is going to be sent down. The, the thing to note, though, like, Hollowell <clears throat> is older than you expect for a guy who has not really established himself in the NHL at all. Yes. Yeah, we're, we're getting to that stage now where if the picks haven't shown very much by this point, it's starting to get a little bit worrying. The clock is obviously ticking. Yeah, I believe he's 24. Um, yeah, so, you know probably getting time to do something about it um maybe that's a good point to start to say um there are picks in this draft that are already out um riley stotts did not get a um a bona fide contract offer so the leafs have surrendered his rights same with the goaltender zachary batillier um they still have the rights to semyon kizimov because rights for russian players are indefinite i believe until either 27 so, if that ever turns into something, they do have the chance to call him over. But again, you aren't going to bat a thousand on these picks. Mm-hmm. 
So yeah, there are some names that are already crossed off. Um, Philip Kral is still kind of hanging around the conversation, and he got his first two NHL games this year, so we'll transition to him. Um, he was taken 149th overall, so that's in the fifth round of the draft. He came over from the Czech League to have a strong draft year in the WHL, putting up 35 points as a rookie defender, and Kalduba said, yeah, give me some of that. From the hockey writers in his draft year, Kral's biggest asset is his skating. He's got great mobility, and he uses his acceleration and awareness to open up opportunities up the ice. It's probably unfair to characterize his playing style as European, but he skews heavily towards the puck-moving finesse game. He has strong awareness in the offensive and neutral zones and distributes the pucks well, particularly transitioning through the neutral zone. The challenge for Kral is that his defensive game is arguably his weakness, and the physical aspect of that in particular, he can get nudged off the puck in the corners. There's a bit of a trend here, isn't there? Yes, you are starting to see a pattern in terms of um, decent mobility, good brain, not a ton of size. And the Leafs seem to have counted on we can teach players to do that. Um, I think you can see that Crawl, in his way, has trended along that line. Um, in 2020, our articles talking about him said he was strong but not dominant, but he was well thought of by his coaches as kind of a workhorse player. And that's the career you have to hope to have if you're Philip Kral. Um, again, you're not going to be walking in as like a second pair dominant guy. You want to be a safe pair of hands. And the more he can do that, the more he's likely to hang around. Um, he seemed to work on that defensive awareness. He's turned into a steady Marlies defender. He's still coming into his own, but he got a cup of coffee in the NHL, which again, of the 60 picks after him, only seven of them have played any NHL games whatsoever. Just by appearing, that puts him in nearly the top 10% of that group. Um, he has to keep improving and hanging around. Again, two games is still a cup of coffee. It doesn't mean that you've done anything yet. Um, but from what I've seen of him and what I've heard of him, he does feel like the kind of guy who might slip into a role as sort of a reliable guy who hangs around the bottom of the roster, slipping in and out of third pairings in the press box, maybe just above the waiver wire. Mm -hmm. But I could see that for him. And if you can do that, you can have a decent career. Why is Crawl not playing now? I feel like I should know the answer to this. Um, If he's experiencing an injury, I did not see it, but I am also... <laughs> less up to date yeah i don't know for certain i just know that he's bounced back up and down and currently it's down right so i mean it's it's in some sense it is a little disheartening for call i'm sure that he's not called up now right maybe they think oh we don't want him to play you know 12 minutes on our third pair maybe like let's let's have him play more heavily with the marlies yeah but i I, um, I haven't followed as to exactly why he he's not I think it's just too many bodies in front of him. Yeah. You know, they want to play Hollowell. They want to try Victor Mete. They were playing Ben. And now Timmons and now is in front of him Timmons. as well. Yeah. And so, Grawl is going to have to keep beating expectations and start outperforming some of these guys in the eyes of coaches or whatever. Um, and, and again, he's not going to do it because he's a dazzling presence. Um, for In terms of the could you have taken someone else... At this point, this is probably the last point where it's even useful to really mention this, but in this range, there's almost nothing established yet. Mm -hmm. I, do, I would doubt that even like an ordinary, like engaged hockey fan would have heard of almost anybody after Crawl unless you are very closely following a team. So yeah, there's no one. Like the last big pick... Was Igor Sharangovich, I think? Sharangovich. Uh, Sharangovich. Yeah, I'm doing a great job on these names. Um, and he went eight picks ahead of Crawl. So, yeah. I'm certainly happy with the early returns on that. Obviously, we're not expecting the world to be lit on fire by Mr. Crawl. It's just he's already beat expectations. Um, and finally, Pontus Holmberg, who has, you know, sort of worker bead his way into the hearts of several Lee fans and apparently at least one coach. Mm -hmm. uh, he was drafted 156th overall in the sixth round. 
The Leafs flipped a 2019 six to Buffalo for the chance to add Holmberg. Presumably Toronto really liked him, while Buffalo wasn't that keen on anyone left on their board. Um, as I mentioned, sorry, this, this st statistic, I mentioned it in the context of Crawl. It's meant to be Holmberg. Of the 60 players picked after him, only seven have had any NHL games, and only one of them has played a significant amount, and it's a depth winger for San Jose named uh, John Leonard. Um, Pontus also hasn't played a ton. Uh, it's early yet. Uh, he was an overager once again in his draft year. He got into a couple of SHL games, but was mostly sticking to school through that period. Um, credit to Scott Wheeler. I think he's quoted well throughout this episode. Uh, maybe not so much on this one, but he said, uh, Pontus Holmberg is another overager, still really raw, weird, rude to get here. We'll play in SHL for first time next season, um, for a longer period. He's a tiny center who projects as a winger. Um, there's still plenty of time for that to happen, although Holmberg is currently taking shifts at center. He is, but I mean, so you, you've remarked yeah. on this before that basically like his face-offs are, are not good. Yeah. And, and yeah, co coaches maybe put an outsized, you know, outsized importance on face-offs, but it's rare to for someone to stick at NHL, a stick at a center in the NHL for a long time if they are like truly, truly awful at face-offs. Yeah. Unless, they're all, and they're, unless they also yeah. happen to be really, really good offensively, which Holmberg is not. Yeah. Um, he, he was... Now, stats as are of yesterday, so they're not including last night's game. But he was a 40% on face-offs, and he'd taken a decent number of them. Um, that's probably not good enough for a fourth-line center. There's some patience while you figure it out, and face-offs are one of those things that are attributed to veteran savvy and how to game the rules a little bit. But Holmberg is still figuring out um, how to do that at the initial level. It will have to get higher than 40%, probably. Um, however, there were some good signs in that draft for a sixth-round uh, pick. Um, there was an SHL article that I looked up that lauded his game intelligence, uh, as per Google Translate, which sounds an awful lot like Hockey IQ. Um Several people spoke well of his ability to protect the puck until he could make a safe play with it. I think I would say I've seen that from him in the NHL a little bit. Um, in 2020, our uh, blog boss, Catch a Nap, was saying he plays hockey extremely well and cannot score a goal to save his life, <laughs> which is a pretty good description of Holmberg's uh, virtues and then some of his offensive limitations at the time. He's gotten more productive, um, which is why he got over and got an NHL contract. Um, the plays hockey extremely well thing is the through line through quotes about him. His coach in uh, the SHL, uh, Sam Hallam, said he's just someone I trust as a defensive forward. And he was speaking of a young player in, in a professional league. Uh, Sheldon Keefe has said he doesn't make a lot of mistakes. Um, if you are this kind of depth player, that is what you want more than anything to see. Your coaches have to like you. And the more they do, the more encouraging it is. Holmberg has given them good reason to like them. You know, he's played a mature style. Going into the game last night, he was first amongst Leaf forwards in scoring chance percentage, which I just find really funny because <laughs> he was ahead of Mitch Marner, <laughs> who was second. Um, yeah, so right now he's getting reps as a 4C. The face-off thing has to improve. He's still, like, hanging on to the edge of the roster. Right. It's to his credit that he's hung on this far. He's going to have to keep improving. And and the, the face-offs probably contributes to Keith not really playing him in super high leverage at the moment because in late and close situations, you you, you kind of do actually really want the, the chance to maximize possession off the draw, right? Yeah. It's like if we're in the last minute of the game and they're pulling their goalie or something like that, the draw is a big swing, right? You really want to give yourself your chances. Um, yeah, he hasn't been used like in feather soft usage in terms of zone starts, but it's been gentler than the extremities of some of the more defensive uh, depth lines. Like when D David Kampf gets the worst work in the NHL in terms of like face offs and zone starts. Um Still, though, I, I think you have to be pleased with how Holmberg has matured. Absolutely. Um, again, you see that trend through Kyle Dubas' picks of, like, the player who is kind, who knows what he's doing, basically, who can be relied on to make prudent choices. 
and preferring that to maybe more physically gifted but less um, physically dominant. Katya describes this as, does yeah. he play hockey? Yeah, yeah, that's um, that's what I'm trying to trend towards is, do you just know where to stand? And that's that looks like it can be a bit of a separator skill um, at, the, at this level. And I think the 2018 draft class, compared to the value of all of those picks, is showing nice returns. Now, they haven't hit a home run on it either. Mm-hmm. Like, there isn't any one of these picks who's like a real definitely big impact top of the lineup well and, and like to, to use the name we've mentioned sharon govich i think had like around 20 something goals and 40 something points last year i think he has a good he's off to a good start this year as is seemingly everyone on the devils if he just become yeah. if he becomes let's say just a standard 50 point player 50 point winger yeah. like automatically that kind of makes the devil's draft better than ours because they've gotten someone who can actually play like a really big role on the team Exactly. You know, it's much easier to find the Philip Carlson, the Pontus Holmbergs of the world in free agency um, as European free agents, you know, signing over from pro leagues overseas um, on the waiver wire. And so there are opportunities definitely to replace these players. At the same time, it is encouraging when your organization produces some kind of useful depth. And as each of these players maybe can play a slightly bigger role at a slightly lower price, that does help. Well, and it also you know, helps a lot in yeah. the context of, of injuries, like mid-season, right? Like, you can you can get yeah. a Philip Crawl-type player in the off-season, no problem, right? Mm. But when injury is hit in the middle of the season, it's, you know, you're, it's often a bit rougher to, to find a guy who can play, you know, play reasonably well for you. So if, if you have a genuinely, like, above-replacement-level guy in your minors, then... You get some benefit from that too. Yeah, and I'll also just, I'll just even emphasize the salary thing. Like, it's not that uncommon for teams to pay one point two, one point five million for a fourth line center type. Um, whether they should or they shouldn't is up for debate. But like, sometimes teams will put a little bit of money there compared to Holmberg making eight hundred and twenty-seven grand. That little bit sometimes helps. You know, if you've suddenly materialized half a million dollars. That's a little bit more that you can use to upgrade somewhere else um, in the roster. Um, and we do anticipate the Leafs are going to try to do that. Um, just This is just as an aside. Elliot Friedman suggested they're still looking at defensemen. Um, you know, I've said I would prefer a scoring forward. I still would, but we'll see. But yeah, um, I think that, you know, Kyle Dubas can be pretty proud of how this 2018 draft is shaping up. Mm-hmm. Um I think his drafting has been a relative strength of his time as GM. Um, all right. We were going to talk about one other thing. Yeah. So, I mean, this is a very, very small, not even like a bad take, just like this is a what's grinding my gears situation. Um, <laughs> so as anyone who has followed hockey in like the last 15 years knows, Washington has had uh, a power play, which is centered around, the threat of Alex Ovechkin one-timers from the left circle, or, or even the left point at times. And yet, every time he scores a power play goal, people somehow remark, like, how is he so open? Why are teams not covering Alex Ovechkin? He scored, I think, like, I think he actually has the most power play goals in NHL history at this point. Um, and he's had that for a little bit. You know, how, how is he still always so open? And I feel like I'm taking crazy pills whenever I hear this. Because the answer is, the defending team has one less player. <laughs> that makes it hard to cover everyone. Yes, it does. Um, the objective in defending an NHL power play, even Washington's power play, is to get scored on at the lowest possible rate. It is not exclusively to stop Alex Ovechkin from scoring on you. The two points are related, but they are not the same thing. Mm-hmm. And... As a matter of fact, this year, um, the Capitals' power play isn't that good on the whole. Um, there is a point at which selling out too hard to defend Alex Ovechkin is a bad idea. Right. I mean, think about it this way. Like, if if NHL, if, it, if in at the NHL, you played 100 players at the same time, a power play wouldn't be that impactful. Right, 100 players versus 99 players. Not a big deal. 
Yeah. As you get closer to zero players, a power play matters more, right? So if you essentially just shadow Ovechkin and you play 4v3 or 3v4 instead of 4v5, that is probably worse for you. Mm. Especially because Ovechkin is just going to, like, if someone is shadowing him, he's going to basically just get out of the way to some degree and be mm. in a position where he's not, where he's in principle not that dangerous, but he's still dangerous because he's Alex Ovechkin. He can score from anywhere. Mm-hmm. And now you have a 4v3 with the rest of the zone to use, and that's, like, a pretty good situation for TJ Oshie to be in or John Carlson to be in or whatever. Yes. Um, at their peak, Nicholas Backstrom. Evgeny Kuznetsov, I'm told, is apparently on the second power play unit right now. Um, we were debating that before this episode started and being, like, interesting. But yeah, the thing is, is that it's not like you cover Ovechkin and then it's done. And I think that that's what most of this analysis is. It says, oh, Ovechkin scores the most goals for them, which he does. Um, that's what you focus on. And I'm saying, if it were that simple, don't, like... I am going to risk an appeal to authority a little bit here. NHL coaches are not totally stupid. Mm -hmm. Like, they're aware that the guy who has scored, like, 800 goals and stands in the same place is a goal-scoring threat. I think they've heard. It's just a matter of you can't totally treat that as the only possible way you can get scored on, or it will burn you a little bit. And there's a point at which you will take a certain amount of risk from Ovechkin, in order to make sure that the other players don't have a free hand against you. Yeah. So, it, yeah. so basically, when, when Ovechkin scores on a power play, just remark, oh, that was that was cool. That was a good goal by Alex Ovechkin. He's very good at that. And don't turn it into, like, these NHL coaches are so dumb. <laughs> yeah. And, I, you know, that's been going on for, like, 20 years. And I'm like, again... I think they've noticed. Right. This isn't like some subtle analytics thing. It's like that Ovechkin scores goals. Yeah, and it, I mean, the I feel like a way to describe penalty killing. It's like a short blanket. You can't mm. cover everything at once. Some part yeah. of you is going to be cold, and in this analogy, I mean, some someone is going to have a decent shot. That is the point of a power play. Yeah, and like the very worst power plays still score more than the best even-strength teams for that reason. It's like, you will get scored on sometimes. And again, I, I feel like it's telling that Washington hasn't always had the best power play in recent years, even though Ovi has maintained that threat mm-hmm. that he presents. Because, yeah, there are trade-offs. Yeah. So, yeah. All right, cool. Yeah, that's everything I wanted uh, to cover. So thank you, everyone, for listening. You can catch all of my and Fuleman stuff at PensionPanPuppets.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at RV and AT Fuleman. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.